It's great to be here this morning. It's great to be together uh, to worship, to worship the Lord, and as well to, to learn from His Word this morning. And uh, if you look at your calendar, it's like already the end of August, right? And so uh, I know a lot of um, students, most of them probably are already back in school. So I, I hope that you've had a good summer um, and that you've enjoyed your summer. At our house, summer is, I would say, a time of extremes. You know, on the one hand, like there's parts of summer that are, are they're really fun, really exciting. There's a lot to do, and, and the kids, um, they're, you know, they're active physically and mentally. Um, and then on the other hand, <laughs> you know, there are days um, where they're just so long, right? So boring, so hot, nothing to do. And, um, and the kids are just glued to their devices, Right? They're glued to their devices like all day, and they're like zombies, right? just, just totally focused on their devices. And they have headphones, right? so it's not like loud or anything. It's just focused. Um, and after one of those days, um, we were uh, putting our kids to bed, and uh, we say prayers at the, at the end of the day. And so we're putting them to bed, and after we pray... Uh, my 11-year-old daughter, Avery, she says, Dad, how come God isn't helping us to spend less time on the iPad? <laughs> and then, like, I'm, you know, I'm thinking, and uh, before I can say anything, and I've got this great answer, right, this real teaching moment in mind, her, her 8-year-old sister from the other side of the room says, Yeah, how come? And I think, oh, I'm a terrible parent, right? I'm, I'm terrible. Their brains are turning to mush because I let them spend all day on these devices. And now they're blaming it on God. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> but but God, God is merciful. God is, God is good. School starts later this week. And I'm like... Oh, I won't have to hear this and think about it too much. Um, today, we're going we're gonna to continue on in the book of Acts. Right? We're continuing on, and we will see how God actually does help people who are open to his leading, right? and who don't just spend all day on the iPad. Um, we'll also continue to, to see the work of the Holy Spirit and to see how Christianity, how it, how it marches and it moves outwards from Jerusalem out to the ends of the earth. And so before we look at our passage in Acts 8 this morning, uh, let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, God, thank you. Thank you for uh, each person here. Thank you, Lord, for uh, our church family. Um, thank you for the relationships we have with one another or for new people and for the newness, Lord, that brings. We thank you just for opening our doors. We ask, Lord, uh, that you would work in us, that you would teach us this morning, that you would open your word up to us, and we might see your truth, the truth of your Son, our Savior and Lord, the Son, Jesus Christ, and we would draw near to him for your kingdom and your glory. 
In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So the book of Acts, right? We've been going through the book of Acts since, since May. Um, and it's a very strategic book, in case, in case you hadn't noticed. It sits right between the Gospels and the Epistles. Right between the ministry and the life and death and resurrection of Jesus And then the New Testament letters that are written by Apostle Paul and other apostles, those letters to teach about Christian life and our belief in Jesus. It's also a bridge. It's a bridge between the gospel starting in Jerusalem, right, where Jesus is crucified, and then moving out. It moves to Judea and Samaria and to other places in Israel, Right, to start with the Jews and then to go out to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles and to the non-Jews. That's what the book of Acts is about. And I just want us to keep that perspective as we read this morning. Let's read, take a look at our passage, Acts chapter 8. I'll read the whole passage starting with verse 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in the chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers, shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice, who de- justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch, they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So we're first introduced to Philip back in chapter six. He's one of the seven, uh, the one of the seven deacons selected by the church and the apostles. The early church chose these these deacons, and Stephen was one of them. Remember, several weeks ago, we talked about Stephen and his life and his ministry and his death. 
Philip was one of these, these deacons, and he was called to serve the church by helping manage and organize the distribution of food to the poor and to the widows that were overlooked. He's also known as Philip the Evangelist. Last, last week, Pastor Corey talked a little bit about Philip and, and his ministry, and we saw that because of persecution, Philip went to Samaria, and in Samaria, he preached, he performed miracles, and he healed many in the name of Jesus. And he also witnessed to Simon the magician. In fact, Philip was such an effective evangelist that Peter and John, who were based in Jerusalem, the apostles had stayed in Jerusalem. They left Jerusalem to go to Samaria to see what all the fuss was about because they were hearing that Samaritans were coming by droves to faith in Jesus Christ. And so they left, they left Jerusalem to go to Samaria to see what was happening. Now in our passage this morning, starting in verse 26, we read that the angel, an angel of the Lord, instructs Philip to go to a road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. It says this is a desert place. Other translations say wilderness area. What we know is that it's a remote area. Not a lot of traffic, not a lot of people. It's, it's like when you drive to Las Vegas, right, and you go past the Cone Pass, and then you start driving out towards Baker or after Baker, and there's just these stretches, right? But there's not much around. I mean, there's a lot of cars driving to Las Vegas. <laughs> but, you know, there's not many towns, not many people. And so it's this remote area And yet, uh, Philip, he leaves this, this thriving ministry. He's having great success proclaiming the name of Jesus in Samaria, and God redirects him to this remote place. And Philip doesn't question. He obeys immediately, as, as the Scripture tells us. He trusts explicitly that God knows what's best. Along this remote stretch of highway, Philip comes across this man. And we're never told the man's name. But it says he was an Ethiopian. He was from Ethiopia, so somewhere from North Africa at that time. And although he wasn't a full convert, he probably wasn't a full convert to Judaism, he went to Jerusalem to worship. So we know that um, he, he, he respected or he had an interest in the Jewish faith. We're told that he was a eunuch. Okay? A eunuch is a man who is castrated to serve in the royal household. He's serving the queen. We see that he's got a prominent position serving the queen and managing her treasury. So the Holy Spirit directs Philip to this man, and he finds him reading from Isaiah. Right, he's reading from a manuscript of Isaiah. Just consider, again, back to when this time is. You would think, oh, he's reading from the book of Isaiah. He probably doesn't have the Bible, the book, the Old Testament, like we do, like we understand it. He's, he's purchased, he's obtained a manuscript from the prophet Isaiah, of the prophet Isaiah, and he's reading. And not only that, but he happens to be reading a passage and a prophecy about Jesus himself. 
So when the man says he doesn't understand what he's reading, Philip, Philip gets to tell him the good news. And the man places his faith in Jesus, and we see he gets baptized. So all of this, when you take a step back and you think about it, is pretty remarkable. That Philip would be supernaturally directed to this individual in order for him to be saved. See, the window of opportunity was not very large. This man was on this remote highway, going back to Africa, no less, and Philip needed to be directed to him from Samaria, and God needed to orchestrate time, location, circumstances. So the window wasn't very wide, but God did this. And, and as I studied the passage, I asked the question, why? Right? Why him? Why this individual? And in all my study and all my prayers, I don't have a good answer. <laughs> Scripture doesn't tell us exactly why. But I do know this, and I see this from the passage, that God's heart is for the gospel to go out. God's heart is for the gospel to go out. While the Bible never mentions this Ethiopian man again, church history tells us that he took the gospel home, that he took the faith and he planted the Christian faith in Africa, in Ethiopia, where he was from. In college, when I went to, I went to USC for undergraduate, and in college, my first roommate was Ethiopian. His name was Burhanu Alula, and Burhanu Alula was from the capital city of Ethiopia, Addis Ababa. And Burhanu used to, he, he found I was, we talked, and he knew I was a Christian. Burhanu was a Christian. And he used to refer me to this passage here in Acts 8 with pride to say, see, this man, he is the first Gentile convert to Christianity, at least as Scripture tells us. And he explains, Burhanu would explain to me how Ethiopia was the first nation to adopt Christianity as its state religion. Now, I think that that might be debatable by some, whether it was really the first country to do that, but I think it's clear that Ethiopia has had a long Christian heritage back since the book of Acts. And I think we can trace it back. We can see it, that the Lord has unfolded history this way. Unfortunately, for many years after Christianity grew and started, it declined in Ethiopia and it declined in Africa. And I want to share some statistics with you, but in the end, the great news is that since the year 1900, so for about the last 120 years, Christianity and the gospel has exploded in Africa. In the year 1900, In the year 1900, there were approximately 8 million Christians in all of Africa. Just 8 million. Now, population, of course, was very small back then, not like it is today, but only 8 million on the whole continent. In the year 2000, depending on what source you use, the figure had grown to over 350 million. So in that last century, in 100 years, The gospel had spread 
and people came to faith in Christ, over 350 million Christians in Africa. Some sobering information at the same time is in the last century, 1.8 million Africans were killed for their faith in Jesus. They died as martyrs. And this doesn't even include the millions that have been killed and suffering from genocidal conflict and civil war in many of those countries. But in spite of persecution, and I would say maybe even because of it, Christianity has exploded. They say the spread of the faith in Africa over the last 50 years represents perhaps the most dramatic advance of Christianity in all of Christian history. And I thought about this, and I thought, this kind of sounds like the book of Acts. Persecution, right? pressing down the church, scattering the believers, and yet the gospel continues to go out. While Saul is trying to destroy the church, and persecution is high, the faith just keeps on spreading. And it goes from believers like Philip to seekers like the Ethiopian eunuch. God's heart is for the gospel to go out. And for us here, I believe at West Covina Christian Church, we want to adopt that heart. We want to adopt that heart that the gospel goes out. We want to see the gospel and the love of Christ spread in our community. And part of that is bringing people into church, and part of that is taking Jesus out to where we work, where we live, where we hang out, where we go to school, bringing people in and taking Jesus out. I was excited to hear the other day that the college young adult group, the CYA group here in our church, that they've been learning about evangelism. And in fact, this afternoon, they're going to the mall to practice what they've learned. They're going to the mall to try and practice evangelism and share the love of Christ, share the gospel with those who will listen. All right, so God bless you guys. I will be praying for that. Uh, I think that's exciting. But how does this all happen, right? How does this conversion process take place? Here in the passage we looked at, everything works so perfectly. The Ethiopian man, he was already reading scripture, right? He's primed for the gospel, and that, wouldn't that be great to find someone like that in the mall? You know, like you're going past, you know, the pretzel place and like, hey, there's a guy reading scripture. Let me talk to him. Right? He's probably open. <laughs> it worked perfectly here. But I think we know that it doesn't always work that way. It doesn't often work that way. But here's the principle I see at work in the passage. That God increases our faith the more we allow the light in. And it's the same way for non-believers. As they open their hearts to Jesus, he increases their faith. And I believe that's a process. It doesn't often happen just in like one instantaneous moment. John 8, 12 says, Jesus spoke to them saying, 
I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Right? We, we sang earlier about the marvelous light. That is Jesus, right? Jesus is the light, and he seeks to enter our lives in increasing fashion, more and more, even as believers, more and more as we grow in our relationship with him. <clears throat> People have varying degrees to which they're open to the Lord. But when there is an opening, God wants to encourage that process. He wants to move it along. We see this happening in these other places that I've talked about. Africa, Latin America, Asia. People are coming to faith in Christ in huge numbers. And we see this process in the work of the life of the Ethiopian man. First, we find that he's returning from Jerusalem. When you look at the passage, right, he went there to worship. So he already has an interest in knowing God. Next, he reads scripture. So he has a spiritual curiosity, and the light comes in more. He admits he doesn't understand what he's reading, so God provides Philip to teach him. And even more, the light comes in. There are so many things I think we don't understand right, about God, about the Word, about His kingdom, and that's okay. I think I look at this passage and I feel like that's okay because God shows that He takes us along this process, and the more we open ourselves up, the more He reveals Himself to us. And He does that with the Ethiopian man. So, our, our job, our responsibility is to keep on coming to keep on Bible studying, to keep on praying, to keep on asking like the Ethiopian man did. What does this mean? Who is this Jesus? What are we talking about? Right, that's the process, and allow God to do his work in your heart and mind. Fourth thing is that the Ethiopian man, he puts his faith in Jesus as the Son of God. Look with me, if you have your Bibles, at verse 37. Right, wait, where's verse 37? If you look at your Bible, if you have it in front of you, there's no verse 37. I'm like, that's strange. Right? But it should be in your footnote. There should be a footnote there. Footnote 4. <laughs> right? And you'll see verse 37 down at the bottom. In response to the man's request to be baptized, Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What did it mean for this man to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? What does it mean for us? It means to me that we let the light of Christ invade our lives. I think invade is a good word. It's to permeate, it's to spread out, it's to take home in our hearts and in our lives. We turn our lives over to the one who is worthy. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's not just a statement of fact. It's a realization 
of life. Corey's, Pastor Corey's already mentioned this, 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 this passage. Galatians 2.20. It's a great scripture. The Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if this sounds huge, if it sounds overwhelming, it's because it is. When we say we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that's revolutionary. That is earth-shattering. And I don't know if we understand it sometimes because in the church, we get used to using the terms and speaking Christianese, and we talk about it like it's the weather or sports. But when we say we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, there's no turning back. Life should never be the same after that realization. It's what 1.8 million Christians in the 20th century in Africa died for, to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I think the Ethiopian man, I think he understood that. He knew that he was going back to his country, a changed man, totally transformed as a follower of Jesus. Fifth, he demands to be baptized. And I love the way verses 36 and 38 tell it. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. This man, he is irrepressible. Right? He is uncontrollable. He just keeps coming <laughs> because he just wants, he just wants more of Jesus. Right? I was thinking he probably would have forced Philip at gunpoint to baptize him right? if Philip wasn't already agreeable and if they had guns back then. Right? <laughs> but he, he, just, he just wants more of Jesus. And this is the process that we want to see in our own lives in our church, in the people around us. Letting the light of Christ take over our hearts and our minds. The last point for the message this morning is that God wants us to take the next step. I see acts of faith all over in this passage. Philip acting in faith, listening to the angel to go, being responsive to the Holy Spirit to do. I see faith in the Ethiopian man earnestly asking Philip to explain the scriptures to him. And he believes in the word of the Lord and he says, what's to prevent me from being baptized? So even though I've only known this guy for 14 verses, I admire him so much because he is constantly open to taking the next step in his faith in Jesus. Sometimes, not all the time, sometimes I think we separate our faith from Christ from how we live our lives. We make them two separate things. 
Right? We make faith and belief in the Son of, in the Son of God into purely an intellectual exercise as if the only thing that matters is what we think. I think if we look at Scripture and we share together, we understand that that's not biblical faith. Scripture says that what we do with our faith matters. How we live our lives, that's what declares what we truly believe. At the end of this passage, Philip is supernaturally carried away by the Holy Spirit. Right, you catch that at verse 39, 40. He's just, he's baptizing him, and it says, when he come, they come out of the water, Philip is taken away. He's carried away by the Spirit, and the eunuch sees him no more. So I can picture it, the man standing there in the pond or in the stream or in the water or wherever he is, and he rises up, and Philip's gone. And he's probably wondering, what just happened? But you know what? He doesn't care. He doesn't care that this amazing thing just happened and Philip supernaturally disappeared. He doesn't care because he's found Jesus or Jesus has found him. And that's all that matters. That's all that mattered to the man. And he took his faith back to his home country. So let me close by asking you two questions. And really, it's just one long question. What is the next step in your faith journey? And what is preventing you from taking that step? Perhaps your next step is to be committing yourself to being here at church to worship and to receive from the Lord. Maybe it's to read the Bible on a more regular basis and to ask questions of Pastor Corey and the Sunday school teachers and others who are leaders, just to ask. Maybe it's to join a home Bible study or growth group and solidify your understanding and find fellowship and accountability. Maybe it's actually putting your faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. In your sermon outline at the bottom, you can see there's a blank line that says, the next step in my faith journey is. And I'd like you to write down, actually put pen to paper and write down what you think the next step is in growing in your faith in Christ. What is God leading to you? Has he spoken to you this morning or during this past week? And what is he saying? It could be a big step, but it may not be a big step. It could be seemingly a small step. And that's all right. That's good. Whatever it is, I want to encourage you to write it down, to take it to the Lord, and if possible, to share it with somebody else. God is gracious, God is merciful, God is loving. He wants to help us. Unlike what my daughters are thinking about help with the iPad, God wants to help us in our daily lives. Second Chronicles 16.9, it says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth 
to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. I love that imagery, that God's eyes are at work searching the earth and looking at his people and his creation to strengthen those whose hearts are growing in faith and are committing to him. So let us take the step, let us take the lesson of the Ethiopian eunuch and let nothing prevent us from taking the next step in our faith. So I'm going to give you just another minute to write down that next step, and then I'll close in prayer.